Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Prayer is popular. If, if that seems like a, a weird thing to say in a context like ours, just, just listen carefully to a few lines from a popular song released back in 2014 by a singer-songwriter, British guy named Sam Smith. Here's a few lines from his song. You won't find me in church or reading the Bible, yet I'm still here and I'm still your disciple. I'm down on my knees, I'm begging you please, I'm broken, alone and afraid. And get this, and I'm going to pray. I've never believed in you, no, but I'm going to pray. Because everyone prays in the end. A couple of years ago, I remember hearing one of my favourite preachers, a British guy called William Taylor, say, in essence, the same thing. Not, not that he stopped going to church and reading his Bible. You'll be pleased to know he does both. But that everybody prays. And I think that's basically true. If it's not everyone, then nearly everybody prays. So, so for example, if we were to think just of the, the world's largest, most prominent religions, and just leave aside Christianity for a moment, Muslims pray five times a day. Jews, three times. Buddhists and Hindus chant mantras and spend hours in meditation. And while no religion is now, ironically, the largest affiliated religious group here in Australia, still many agnostics and atheists will admit that they find themselves in, in moments of desperation crying out to a God that they just don't know. For the past few months, I've been working as a labourer for a building company here in Melbourne. And a couple of weeks before Christmas, uh, I was on a work site and I asked one of the guys I was working with that day if he's ever prayed. And just, just picture in your mind's eye a kind of typical, rough, tough, sort of hard, ochre, Aussie guy. And yet when I asked him if he's ever prayed, he said with barely a moment's hesitation, yeah, of course, as if to imply, hasn't everyone? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying that prayer is, or marks our life, characterises our life the way that it should. I mean, that a person has prayed a prayer once is no indication that prayer is a characteristic of their life. And I certainly don't mean to imply that all prayer is the same, that God hears and listens to and accepts all our prayers as being equally valid in his sight, regardless of our standing before him, regardless of our standing before Christ. That's just not true. And yet... This near universal instinct that we have to cry out to God at times in prayer does, I think, reveal something deep and profound about what it means to be human. After all, we're made in the image of God. We're made specially for relationship with him, uniquely made in the image of God, made for relationship with him, and God himself is a communicative being. You ever heard your dog pray? Ever seen your goldfish just, you know, fold, fold its little flippers and start praying in the, in the tank? Ever had a 
You know, those pesky mosquitoes on warm summer's evening as you sit down to a barbecue. Ever heard them pray? Dogs don't pray. Goldfish don't pray. Mosquitoes don't pray. People pray. Prayer is popular. But more than that, prayer is also actually deeply personal. So, so you, could, you could learn a lot about the people sitting around you, what, what's important to them, what makes them tick, what their priorities are, if you just listen carefully to the way that they pray. I don't say that to make you kind of self-conscious the next time you all pray together. But the fact of the matter is, prayer reveals not just what we believe about God, but about ourselves, others, the world, and just about everything else. Prayer is also powerful. So as Christians, we understand from the Bible that there are some blessings, some privileges, some joys that God has determined to give us only in response to our prayers. Think of James 4. In James 4, James does not say, you have, even though you didn't ask. He says, you do not have, because you did not ask. Implication, had you asked, you would have. But you didn't ask, so you don't have. Prayers, our prayers, are part of the ordained means by which God intends to bring about his good and sovereign and wise plans and purposes in our lives. That's why James goes on to say in chapter 5, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Prayer is also an amazing privilege, isn't it? I remember a number of um, years ago, many years ago now, um, when Katie, our youngest daughter, was just two years old or around two, um, she would come out to the kitchen of a morning, kind of waddle over to where I was sitting, having a cup of coffee, enjoying hot cross buns or a piece of toast, and she'd She'd come over to where I was sitting. She'd climb up onto my lap. She'd look at me with her big brown eyes and eventually she'd say, can I have some please, Dad? And then she'd just start picking away the plate as I was trying to enjoy my hot cross buns or piece of toast. Now, think about it. If you, if you, if you came to my house at 6 a.m. in the morning, came inside, climbed up onto my lap and tried to start eating my hot cross buns, one, that'd be very strange, it'd be super weird, but two, it, just, it would just never happen. Because you instinctively understand that you and I, we don't have that kind of relationship. You see, Katie gets to do that because she's my daughter. I'm her father. Notice at the start of Colossians, look in verse 2 of chapter 1. Paul says this. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. In other words, through the gospel, Paul understands that God has become our father. So when Paul prays this prayer, when we pray our prayers, we come to God like a child does a father. That's amazing. Tim Keller once said that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3am for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Prayer is a privilege. And yet, despite all of this, I think that if we're actually being honest, 
Well, we asked as we walked through the doors of the church this morning, if we're being honest, most of us would have to say that we find at least some aspects of prayer problematic. It's not that we don't pray. It's just that if we're being honest, most of us, I think, would have to say that we are deeply, deeply aware that we just don't pray the way that we ought. As a family, we like to holiday on the south coast of New South Wales, lovely little spot called Marimbula. And we were up there a couple of years ago and Noah, my eldest son and I, we were fishing early one morning off a wharf. And a guy drove up, it's about 6am, guy drove up in his car, jumped out with his fishing rod and his lure, he came over to the wharf where we were fishing, he cast out his lure and wound it back in, he went straight back to his car, threw the rod in, got a different rod with a different lure, he cast that out like maybe three times at the most, wound it back in, went back to his car, threw his rod in, jumped in his car and drove off. Now, I'm no expert fisherman, but I know enough to know that it's very hard to catch a fish if you have the attention span of a fish. And yet, if you think about it, I think that actually like, provides a bit of a picture of how many of us approach prayer at times. So, so we might... We or someone close to us might taste the fear of death or, or get some prick of conscience or we might experience a moment of excitement and so we, we, throw out a, we cast out, throw out a few quick prayers, but then whatever the ordeal end, it is, it ends. And so too with it, all inclinations to pray. It's much easier, isn't it, to begin a habit of prayer than to actually keep it up. Lord, my, my, my New Year's resolution this year is to, is to pray more. And we're in February and we realise, well, maybe next year. You might have heard it said that the only thing that's easy about prayer is stopping. Just about everything else to do with prayer is hard, except quitting. Verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. In other words, here in Colossians 1, we find Paul not just praying, but praying persistently. And notice he's not praying persistently for himself, actually. He's praying persistently for others. For a church, in fact, he's never even met. Look at verse 7. You learned it, that's the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So Paul didn't plant this church. As best we know, he'd never even been there. And yet, verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. Do you know that the Bible contains around 650 prayers? And this is just one of them. In other words, when we look at a passage like this, one of the things that we don't want to do is we don't want to absolutise it. don't want to kind of imply that this is you know, the quintessential passage on prayer and if you can just get this passage just understand this passage and all of its implications and every question you have every problem you might experience when it comes to prayer will somehow be answered or solved but i do think this passage provides us with at least two things that are super helpful super instructive when it comes not just to our prayers in general but especially when it comes to our prayers for others, for one another in the church. Here's the two things. Firstly, we see how the gospel motivated Paul to pray. 
And then secondly, we see how the gospel molded or shaped what Paul prayed for. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to just walk our way through this passage, noticing those two things. Firstly, how the gospel motivated or moved Paul to pray. And then secondly, how the gospel molded or shaped what he prayed for. And then we'll finish by by drawing out a few implications for our praying, especially our praying for one another. Make sense? Okay. First point, how the gospel motivated Paul to pray. So if you have your Bible there, keep them open. That'll be helpful for the next 40 or so minutes. Uh, And just cast your eyes, just to begin with, cast your eyes over the passage and notice that from the word asking there in the middle of verse 9, basically all the way down to the end of verse 12, start of verse 13, Paul simply tells these Colossians what he's been praying for them. But it's interesting. It's, it's easy to miss this, but it's very interesting. You shouldn't miss it. He, he, before he tells them what he prays, he first tells them why he prays. Notice that at the start of verse 9. And so, which is actually better translated for this reason. So for this reason, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. What's the reason? It could also be translated because of this. Because of this, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. What's the this? Well, to answer that question, you have to look up into verses 3 to 8. So if you look up to verses 3 and eight, to 8, you'll notice that Paul has just been saying that he's always thanking God because of how the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death and resurrection has been spreading and bearing fruit throughout the world. That is, people are hearing it, believing it and being saved. And this gospel has come to these Colossians through a guy called Epaphras, verse 7. And they've now come to faith in Jesus and Paul is very, very thankful. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So through the gospel, they now trust in Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Their faith in Jesus has produced a unique, a distinct kind of love for one another that only comes through the gospel. It only comes through faith in Jesus because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, they now have hope of a physical life with God after death in a whole new world, free from sickness, sin, suffering and death. It will be amazing. Verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Verse 9, And so, for this reason, because of this From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, do you see? You know, I think probably that the trickiest thing about this passage is not some obscure, hard to understand sort of theological concept. It's not some difficult word that's kind of rarely used. Actually, I think the most difficult thing about this passage is just understanding Paul's logic. Kind of grasp how intricately connected what he thanks God for is to what he asks God for. 
Because you see, I suspect that when it comes to our praying, we don't tend to link thanking God with asking God in quite the same way as Paul does here. In fact, um, there's a guy called uh, John Woodhouse. He was the former principal of Moore College up in Sydney. A number of years ago, he wrote an excellent commentary on Colossians. It was really helpful in preparing this. And, and at one point in the commentary, he, he points out that when it comes to our praying, we actually tend to see thanking God and asking God as alternatives. And I think that's right. So, for example, um, later tonight, uh, you go home from, from church, spend the afternoon, you sit down to dinner, and it's very likely when you sit down to dinner, you'll do what? You'll thank God. You'll thank God for the food. But you see, as you thank God for the food, it is not likely that you're going to start asking God to feed you. Or if at work this week, you find yourself in a particularly difficult spot, just to find yourself in a, a particularly difficult jam. Or um, if you're at home with the kids and you find yourself at wit's end, just desperate, desperately frustrated. In moments like that, we, we tend to cry out to God. We ask God for help. At which point in time, let's be honest, thankfulness is probably not on the forefront of our minds. I mean, we tend not to think, Lord, thank you so much for this job that is just stressing me out of my mind. Or, or, or the, the, the sweet sound of that high-pitched scream. I mean, thank you, Lord, for these, the blessing of these beautiful little kids. It tends to not be how we operate in our prayer life. And yet, here for Paul, he's thanking God and he's asking God are intricately connected. One actually gives rise to the other. So what's going on? Well, you'll be helped to see, I think, and grasp what's happening here if you appreciate just one basic principle, and that's this. It's that our thankfulness actually tends to function a bit like a mirror that reflects back to us the things that we really love, the things that are most important to us the things that we value most. See, that's why uh, even though we, we tend to give our kids wheat bix for breakfast nearly every morning, they've, they've never said to me, they eat them, but they've never said to me, Dad, I'm just so thankful for these wheat bix You know, that, that high fibre, low fat, soggy texture goodness. I am just so, so thankful that I'm an Aussie kid. Never said that to me. And yet, I think there's barely a Friday night that goes by where Norella or I don't hear something like, thanks so much, Mum, thanks so much, Dad. Why? Well, it's very simple. Friday nights in our house tend to be pizza and ice cream and movies. And we tend to be most thankful for the things we really love. Here's what that means. What you spend most of your time thanking God for will actually give you a very good indication of the things that you really love. The things that are most important to you. The things that you value most. So if you were to think back, just over the past month, and all the prayers that you've prayed, if what's most important to you is your family, or your work, or your material possessions, then it's very likely that you'll find 
that what you've spent most of your time thanking God for is your family, your work, your material possessions, do you see? Don Carson points out that the specific things that Paul thanks God for in his prayers throughout the New Testament actually shows the framework of values that he then brings into his intercessions, into what he asks God for. What he's saying is this. Throughout the New Testament, there actually tends to be a connection between what Paul thanks God for and what he asks God for. So when Paul's thanking God, he's doing more actually. He's thanking God, but he's doing more than just thanking God. He's revealing the framework of values that he then brings into the things that he asks God for. So what he thanks God for reveals the kinds of things that he values, the kinds of things that are most important to him, the kinds of things that he really loves. And so, of course, when it comes to what Paul asks God for, there's often a correlation, a connection to what he's just thanked God for. That's why you, you, you never see in the New Testament Paul pray something like this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. And so for this reason, because of this, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that God might provide you with a new house a better car, promotion at work. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that Paul would think that to pray for those things is wrong. That those things are somehow unimportant. That they're of no importance. After all, we live in a fathered world. God loves us. He cares about every detail, every aspect of our lives. But you cannot read the New Testament seriously. And come away thinking that for Jesus, or for Paul, or for any of the apostles, that any of those things were of first importance. And yet I wonder if you just did like a, just anecdotally, I wonder if you did a survey of the average evangelical church in Melbourne, if it might reveal that we've started to think otherwise. If you start to see the gospel like a mere addendum, something that you simply add on to your life rather than the lens which brings into focus new priorities to adopt, new principles to live by, new ways of praying both for ourselves and for one another, then we'll never pray like Paul does here. And our prayers, both individually and corporately, will always be the poorer for it. Paul was always asking God because he was always thanking God. What he was always asking or thanking God for, rather, is the gospel, is that the gospel was spreading and bearing fruit throughout the world, that these people like these Colossians had come to faith in Jesus. And since the advance of the gospel was of first importance to Paul, he was also always praying, asking that God would continue the advance of the gospel in the lives of God's people. That's why, as you move from why Paul prayed to what he prayed, You see that the gospel didn't just motivate, move Paul to pray. It also molded, it shaped the content of what he prayed for. This is the second point, how the gospel molded Paul's prayer. 
And that at Mulder, Paul's prayer, I think is clear when you look at the, the one central request that Paul makes and all the implications that flow from that. The one central request is there in the middle of verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here it is, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, way back at the start of the Second World War, Winston Churchill was famously asked about the intentions and interests of Russia. Everyone was wondering at the start of the war what they were going to do. And Churchill responded, kind of witty as ever, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia because it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I, actually, I think that's a bit like how lots of Christians feel when, it come, when, they, when they hear that phrase, knowing God's will. That's how lots of Christians feel. We, we, we ask, don't, when it comes to God's will, we, we ask questions like, who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? How many kids should I have? Where should I send them to school? Where should I park the car? What should I eat for breakfast? So many questions. And pretty soon we start to find ourselves thinking, I cannot forecast you the action that God would have me take because it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Now, of course, at one level, all of us ask questions like that. They're just very normal questions. It's a normal part of living life in this world. But the problem is when we then expect God to show us all the details of his plans for our life before we actually make any decisions. Then God's will starts to feel like something that's so hidden, it's so mysterious, so impenetrable, so secretive that we can never really know. And so we'll always be left wondering, paralyzed, feeling paralyzed about which way we should go. Kevin DeYoung once wrote in a great book, he, he wrote on this topic, Just Do Something. If you've not read it, you should read it. He wrote, God is not like a magic eight ball that we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience and invites us to take risks, by which he means make decisions for him. We know that God has a plan for our lives and that's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will as well intended as as the desire may be is more folly, he says, than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God and then trust that he will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we are going. See, when Paul, when Paul asks that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he's not referring to some secret, hidden, impenetrable mystery that you can never really know. He assumes that you can know this. Whether you're male or female, an adult or a child, he assumes that we can know this. What Paul's referring to is God's plans and purposes for this world. What God has actually already revealed through the person and work of Jesus, through the gospel, and all that that means for this world and our lives in it. I mean, just look at the the verses that follow the passage we're looking at this morning. So just, just notice what Paul says in the verses immediately following this passage. Look at verse 15. He, that's Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, all things were created by him and through him and for him. Verse 18, he is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, God is taking sinners like us, sinners like these Colossians who were once alienated from him and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, and he's now reconciling us to himself by the death of Jesus so that we might be holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 22. And so verse 23, we must continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Friends, that's the knowledge of God's will that Paul wants us to be filled with. And he asks, notice, that God's spirit would give us understanding to see all the implications that flow from that and wisdom to know how to live and make decisions in the light of it. In other words, Paul's not asking this, not praying this so that we can kind of walk around kind of like a bunch of theological eggheads who just kind of, I just know some stuff about God and his will. No, look at verse 10. So as purpose to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And this walk, this life, that's what Paul means by walk. It's just a Jewish metaphor, an idiom referring to how we live. This life that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, consists, Paul says, of four things. Number one, it's a life, verse 10, that bears fruit in every good work. So in Paul's mind... If you're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to live in a way that's pleasing to God, then your knowledge of God's will, of his great saving plans and purposes for this world that are centered on Jesus must actually, like tangibly, change what you do, how you live, the way you spend your time, where you invest your material resources, the way you conduct yourself at work. So notice very carefully that for Paul, it's not just the gospel that bears fruit throughout the world producing Christians. It's also Christians who then in turn bear fruit in the world producing good works. Secondly, it's a life, verse 10, where we increase in the knowledge of God. So notice carefully that of the four things that Paul says about this life that's pleasing to God, we'll get to the third and fourth in a moment, but of these four things, these first two, I think, are most tightly connected in Paul's mind. So it's clear, I think, when you notice that he actually links them by that little word, and. Look at verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if you could climb inside Paul's mind, I think his run, logic runs something like this. He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God's great saving plans and purposes so that we live in a manner worthy of the Lord, which is a life in which we produce fruit in the form of good works. And as we do that, as we live in the light of the gospel, as we obey God's commands, as we give ourselves to good works, 
One of the things that happens is we actually grow in our knowledge of God. You can know that God wants you to stop looking at pornography. You can know that about God's will. You can know that through the gospel, you're not your own. You've been brought with a price and so you ought to glorify God with your body. But you will come to know God experientially in a way that you will not know him otherwise, in a way that you have not previously known him if you actually stop looking at pornography. You're like, huh, like, God's command's actually for my good. He's not trying to kill my joy. He's trying to enhance it. You can know that God wants you to keep yourself free from the love of money. To be content with what you have, since what you have is what God has given you, and he's a good God who withholds no good thing from those whose walk is upright. That in the gospel, he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? You can know that about God's will. But it's only if you actually don't buy the lie of materialism. It's only if you actually keep your, your life free from the love of money. It's only if you actually keep your faith and your finances connected and store up for yourself treasure in heaven that you will increase in your knowledge of the God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you in a way that would not otherwise be possible. You will come to know and experience that God really is a better master than money. And that if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, your father in heaven really will take care of all of your needs even as he begins to free you from all of the things that you might struggle with in terms of greed. Number three, it's a life, verse 11, where we're continually being strengthened by God for all endurance and patience with joy. Implication. So so here, I think, is what sits behind what Paul says here. If you're filled with the knowledge of God's great saving plans and purposes revealed in the gospel. And if that actually, if that tangibly shapes the way you live so that you walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, guess what? That won't always be pleasing to the world. It might get very, very hard for you. Very difficult at work. Very discouraging among your family and friends when they mock you for your faith in Jesus. And you're going to need all of God's power, all of his glorious might to strengthen you and to help you make it to the end. I remember a number of years ago, I was pastoring a church in the centre of Melbourne And um, as an eldership, we decided to host a a seminar presenting a Christian understanding of marriage. So it was a public seminar. Anyone could attend. In fact, we hoped that we'd attract people from all walks of life, different faiths, different backgrounds, different perspectives. And the goal was very simple. It was to have a, a respectful, kind, charitable discussion about what the Bible teaches regarding marriage, why that's important, Why the future stability and health of this country depends in no small way on the health and stability of marriage as God designed and intended it. And that there are actually other ways 
for governments to treat people who, are, who find themselves in, in different kinds of unions equally and respectfully without actually having to redefine the God-ordained institution of marriage. So we had a, a panel of speakers. There was a Christian counsellor, there was a politician, there was a, a leading academic on, on sexual health and education and, and we'd hoped that it'd be a, a safe place. A place where people come, safe evening where people could come and explore and better understand Christianity's teaching on marriage. That's what we'd hoped. I got there about an hour early to start um, setting up and already out the front of the church, there was a group of people gathering. And by the time the seminar started, a crowd had built out the front of the church. They weren't there to participate, they were there to protest. And for the next few hours, every single person that walked through the doors of the church had to walk through the crowd who were chanting jeers and taunts at them, saying things like, shame, bigot, shame I don't want to get weird but just don't look at me for a moment just look around the room see fellow church members people you love just 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 briefly look around the room stop looking at me look around the room I know this is maybe a little uncomfortable but just just take a look around the room you realize don't you that if you're to see any of these faces in the new heavens and the new earth it will only be because God in his great mercy has strengthened them with all his power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's not for nothing that we sing that God's grace has brought us safe thus far and his grace will lead us home. Notice there's three words here. There's endurance, there's patience and there's joy. As others point out, endurance is what you need in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Patience is what you need in the midst of difficult people. Joy is to permeate our experience of both because we have a hope, you see, that transcends any difficulties that we might face in a fallen, broken world like this. Fourthly, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord involves giving thanks to God the Father because in Paul's mind, you see, if you really understand God's grace to you in the gospel, it will always, always lead to gratitude. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, that word inheritance most often refers to God giving Israel the promised land of Canaan. Here, it refers to God giving us a place with all the saints, that is all God's people, a place in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. A place known as marked by light. The absence of everything dark. No sin. No sickness. No suffering. No death. It will be amazing. But what has God done? How has he qualified us to share in this great inheritance? We'll look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, 
I think one of the things that's most remarkable about the Bible is just how honest and realistic it is about what life is like in this world. You see, God understands, he is very aware that we have all kinds of needs, that we have all kinds of problems. So we have marriage problems and relationship problems and money problems and health problems and education problems and employment problems and justice, all kinds of problems. But here's the thing, you, you'll never really understand Christianity. You'll just never really be able to make sense of Jesus unless you understand this. That according to the Bible, of all of the problems that we experience in this world, and there's lots of them, actually our most fundamental problem, like the problem that sits at the base of all of them, is actually the problem of our sin. The fact that every single one of us in this room has sinned and rebelled against the God who made us and who loves us. And one of the things that means is that our greatest need is therefore the need to be redeemed, the need to be forgiven, the need to be reconciled to God. In fact, of all the other problems we experience, all of those other problems are actually in some way connected to this most fundamental problem. And yet here's the thing those other problems probably feel more pressing to you. They probably feel more significant. Chances are you did not walk through the doors of this church this morning thinking my greatest need, my greatest problem this year that I really need to solve is I need to get right with God. That's probably not the case. And yet just because something feels more pressing, just because something seems more significant, or more immediate, that actually doesn't make it more significant. When I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with cancer. Now that, that felt very significant at the time, very, very pressing. I'm now 41. So, so statistically, that kind of makes me a survivor. But just think for a moment, what would you think if a group of skydivers all jumped out of a plane without parachutes on and one of the skydivers clipped his head on the propeller as he jumped out of the plane and nearly died. And what would you think if at 3,000 feet all of those skydivers kind of got together, you've seen the skydivers, they get together and they link arms, skydiver style, like, what would you think if at 3,000 feet they all get together and they start celebrating and cheering the guy on his supposed survival? Author Matt McCullough says, that calling anyone's story a survival story is like describing a fall from a 30-storey building a survival story because it ends before the subject hits the ground. See, I might be cured of cancer. I have not been cured of dying. Here's the thing. There's a leading academic in the 20th century, a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He once said, that if at birth, every single one of us just had a recording device hung around our necks that, that records all of the moral judgments that we make throughout our lives. Every time you think that's wrong, every time you say that you shouldn't do that, every time you think that that's not right, every time you make a moral judgment, the record button gets hit. He says, 
that if those moral judgments were then played back to us at the end of our lives, our own moral judgments would condemn us because we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. You see, deep down, every single one of us knows in our heart of hearts that God exists and that when we die and stand before his bar of judgment, he would be right to condemn us because we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. See, the reason that guilt is a universal experience is because guilt is a universal problem. By that I mean, I don't mean to imply that all of our feelings of guilt or the absence thereof are always right. What I mean is this, that we all experience feelings of guilt points to the fact that we've actually all sinned and stand objectively guilty before God, and he will be right to judge us and condemn us. And so, what we really need, therefore, is someone to save us. That's why the gospel is the best news in the world. That's why Jesus came, truly God, truly man. He came in order to live the perfect life that none of us in this room have lived. And then he, he died on a cross as a substitute. He died in the place of all of us who would turn from living life our own way and trust in him. And he was raised from the dead as Lord and King, as proof, evidence that he really was who he claimed to be. And then he now calls us to turn from living life our own way and trust in him. And, and if we do that, we can actually experience the, the forgiveness and the redemption that Paul speaks of here in verse 14 the forgiveness of your sins. You can actually know the God who made you and who loves you. You can know life and experience life with Jesus, real life, eternal life, life that stretches beyond the grave and goes into eternity. Friends, God's grace to us in the gospel has delivered us and transferred us and redeemed us and forgiven us and given us an inheritance that we do not deserve, one that is unimaginably good. And so now to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul says, involves giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened for endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks to God the Father. Well, that's the prayer. A prayer motivated by the gospel and a prayer moulded, shaped by the gospel. I want to finish by just thinking about a couple of brief things that we can learn from Paul's praying and how that might help us in, in our praying, especially our praying for one another. You see, the, the fundamental reason why Paul prays the way he does here is because he himself has been filled, of course, with the knowledge of God's will. That's why he's so thankful. You see, Paul has become so captivated, so enthralled, so caught up in God's great plans and purposes revealed in the gospel, in the personal work of Jesus, and all that that means for this world and for his personal life in it, and for these Colossians, that it, it moulds, it shapes, it transforms everything about Paul, including how he prays. 
And since Paul's fundamental request is that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will, the same ought to be true for us. There's so many things that we can learn from this, so many implications that flow from being being captivated, enthralled, caught up in God's great plans and purposes revealed in the gospel. Let me mention just quickly three related to prayer. Firstly, it keeps our prayers from being self-involved. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that it's wrong to pray for yourself, that it's inappropriate to cast all of your cares and anxieties upon the Lord, regardless of how small they are. That's not what I mean at all. But the truth is, again, if, if we're honest, the truth is we often get so caught up in, so overwhelmed, so confused, consumed rather, with our own needs and our own problems that the only person that we can say with any integrity that we've not ceased to pray for is ourselves. And there's something wrong with that. What I'm suggesting is if you spend less time simply thinking about your problems and more time thinking about God's great plans and purposes revealed in the gospel. And for all that means for this world and your life in it, including your problems, then I think you'll find several things might happen. Number one, it will put your problems into proper perspective. It's fascinating that when Paul writes this letter, he's actually in prison. I think that qualifies as a problem. And yet when he asks these Colossians to pray for him in chapter 4, you know the thing he asks for? He asks that God would enable him to share the gospel effectively. So it will put your problems into proper perspective. Two, it will begin to fill your heart afresh with gospel hope. Three, you'll begin to find that there's actually much to be thankful for. Much evidence of God's grace, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others around you. Did you notice all of the plurals in verses 13 and 14? He has delivered us, plural, from the domain of darkness, transferred us, plural, to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we, plural, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And four, you'll find that that thankfulness begins to point you down a pathway that leads you to start praying the way that Paul does here. Notice that by the time Paul finishes praying for these Colossians, he's called them to join him in thanking God. And remember, it was his thanking God that led him into asking God. You see, what Paul says of these Colossians in verse 3, they could equally say of him. We, have not, we, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, Paul, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. For this reason, because of this, we have not ceased to pray for you. And friends, by God's grace we ought to be able to say the same of one another. So this keeps our, our prayers from being self-involved. Secondly, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, of his great plans and purposes revealed in the gospel, will keep what we ask of God moored, tied, connected to what we know of God. See, sometimes you meet Christians... And what they, what they really want, what they really desire, is like a, a deep, experiential spirituality that engages their hearts. And that's a good thing. But then you meet other Christians, and what they really want, what they really desire, is like a, a deep, rich, 
theological knowledge of God that engages their mind. The problem is that we've started to think those two things actually don't belong together. For Paul, a a deep theological, biblical knowledge of God, of his will, of his plans and purposes, of who he's revealed himself to be in the person and work of Jesus, actually goes hand in hand with a deep spiritual, experiential relationship with God. John Woodhouse warns, that we must not be deluded with the thought that there is actually some kind of tension or opposition between the intellectual and the spiritual. That you put the intellect to one side in order to be spiritual. That your study of God's word and your prayers are unrelated. Remember, Paul's central request was that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We sometimes think that in order to pray effectively for one another, the most important thing for us to know is the other person's deepest concerns, their deepest desires, their deepest longings. But of course, that presupposes there's never anything wrong with my deepest concerns, my deepest desires, my deepest longings. And that's just not true. Sometimes I need you to pray better prayers for me than I ask for myself. So you see, while in a local church like this, we should actually care deeply about one another. We should desire to know one another deeply as an expression of our love for one another. That's just normal Christianity. Yet it is not our knowledge of one another, but our knowledge of God, of his word, of the gospel, of God's plans and purposes for this world and our lives in it that will actually enable you to pray best for one another. Thirdly and finally, being captivated enthralled, caught up in God's great plans and purposes revealed in the gospel, will keep your prayers from being small. Why does Paul pray for a church he's never met? Why do Binoy and Donnie lead us in praying for churches most of us have never even been to? Surely it's because they, like Paul, understand that God has global intentions global purposes for the gospel. Just listen to what Paul says about this in in Colossians chapter 1 alone. This is everywhere in the New Testament. Just listen to Colossians chapter 1 alone. Verse 5, Paul says that the gospel has been spreading and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. Verse 20, he says that God is reconciling to himself all things. Verse 23, he tells the Colossians that the gospel that they've heard has been proclaimed in all creation. And so, verse 28, Paul says that he warns everyone, teaches everyone, that he might present everyone mature in Christ. See, Paul understands that God has global intentions, global purposes for the gospel, and so he prays for Christians across the globe. I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito, writes pastor theologian John Stott, one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. I sat in the back row and when we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holidays. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick. 
and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. I said to myself, this is a village church with a village God. Friends, this is not a village church serving a village God. This is a gospel church. And we have the joy of serving a global God. One who is so big, so magnanimous, so kind, so big-hearted, that he has plans and, and purposes that extend well beyond the four walls of this church building. And so, let me encourage you, motivated by the gospel, to pray prayers that are moulded by the gospel. Because the gospel is spreading and bearing fruit throughout the whole world, as it also does among you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to be more prayerful as a people. We pray that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Please help us to bear fruit in every good work and to increase in our knowledge of you. Please strengthen us for all endurance and patience with joy and help us to give thanks to you in all circumstances because you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.